0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR.
1: Reality Check Radio.
0: Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and of course, with Media Matters, as always, I am joined by Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. How are you?
1: Good morning, Marie. Yep, good. I'm good. Pretty good.
0: Yeah, we've been diving through the papers uh, this week, and it's, yeah, we're getting to the tacky, sticky, mucky, messy end of an election campaign, I mean, it's less than three weeks before the early voting opens, October 3, mm. which actually, to be honest, I mean, October 14's the end point. I mean, it really is that, yeah, two-week, ten-day period starting from October 3. Lots of playing the man and not the ball and polls coming out the wazoo and and lots of hand-wringing and...
1: Yeah, hand-wringing. Do you want a big, giant douche or a turd sandwich? <sighs> i know. trying to get excited about that as South Park parodies the democratic process.
0: I just, all I'm seeing is plenty of manure and a lot of fans, and I think they're going to connect very, very soon. That's the feeling that I have. Uh, let's just start with the polls because there's been a whole heap of them out. And, As we've often said, and Cam, I know, talks about this frequently, you need to look at the trend in a poll. Don't get too mired and bogged down with the actual numbers uh, because the trend is where it's at. Every single poll has its own little nuance. But the big trends with the three polls, or actually four polls, I think it's been since we were last year, have been very, very significant now. Labour is certainly now wallowing in the 20s, and it's not pretty.
1: Well, yeah, we've talked about that article on Bassett, Prash and Hyde, that I went to print off and then I had a look at it and turned out it was 20 pages of Labour's failures. Now, the wonder isn't that they're in the late 20s. The wonder is um, that they're not a lot lower. But as I've uh, pointed out also on a couple of occasions, you've got to look at that survey of Democrat voters in the US, and half of them thought people who refused to get Vax should be put in internment camps, and 30% thought their children should be taken off them.
0: Mm. And that number is pretty consistent with, if you ever read the book, Psychology of Totalitarianism, but Matthias Tesmet, those who are most gripped by a mass formation. I mean, the numbers all sort of line up, and again, that number is around that sort of 20 to 30% mark. One of the things we were chatting about before we came to Erin, you and I have been bouncing around the last couple of days, is the one thing we've noticed is the lack of coverage in column inches that the Greens seem to be getting and yet, in the polls, they're fairly solid and consistent around that ten percent mark. Some polls has had them creeping up to to twelve percent. Even by saying nothing, they appear to be quietly hoovering up those voters the, from the Labor crazy that communist are vote
1: in hmm. New Zealand. I mean, we really do need a a Green Party because some of the hundred billion dollars or whatever was borrowed. You know, if you put 1% of that into cleaning up the rivers, New Zealand improves so much. And, of course, that's not the priority of green politics. The priority is to cause global Marxist equity so developed nations get poorer. And we do that by borrowing money that the fat controllers print and sending it to corrupt developing nations that are building coal-fired power stations. And anyone who criticises that, is a climate denier.
0: And I think what a number of people need to realise is those who have been Green supporters, that they now no longer represent what they say on the tin. So you were with Cam on Friday, mm. and he dropped out an idea, pop, yeah. popped out something in the conversation that I think there were a number of audible gasps from many oh, people around It blew, around blew the my fraps. mind
1: hearing it, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so refreshed for our listeners who haven't caught the political agenda on Friday, what was that?
1: What he basically said was, and, and this was news to me, a lot of the National Party's rank and file hate act because, well, they come from the Labour Party. And a lot of those people uh, vote on colours. There'd been talk, he said, uh, among people in the party about forming a coalition with the Greens And New Zealand first, because, you know, now the Luxon National Party is left of Helen Clark's Labour Party. It makes sense to go even more communist by joining up with them, I guess. And, you know, I saw in an interview with Jack Tame uh, with Luxon on Q&A where he said, to, to those people who, who are still climate deniers or climate minimizers, you know, just just give it up. We're absolutely fixated on getting to uh, carbon zero by 2050. And I thought that was an interesting choice of words, considering if you say someone's fixated on something, it, it tends to be what Ashley Bloomfield was about vaccinating people, not worrying so much about suicide, depression, myocarditis and other things. It suggests an imbalance in your look at in your way of looking at things that doesn't lend itself to successfully governing a country.
0: And he is exceptionally woke. Like I know when he became leader, and in one of the very first uh, press outings that he had after becoming leader, and there was sort of this little frisson of, of hope, I think, amongst national supporters. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to this. Mm. And he said. This line, and that was it for me. I was done for him. Not the lived in,
1: experience.
0: In my lived experience. Mm. And that is directly from that lexicon. If you're using that sort of language, that means that you're steeped in that sort of thing. And he's gone to go on and prove that again and again and again and again. And I just can't help feeling, I don't know whether or not he genuinely believes this from his years in the corporate environment and that way of governance and ideology has been in corporatism now since essentially the Occupy Wall Street days of of the early 2000s and it has become more prevalent and he was a corporate animal in that space, or Mm. whether or not he's become more pronounced with it since he's been in politics because he wants to be liked.
1: He just wants to be a good boy. I see him as as oddly amoral. Sort of reminds me of that uh, old Texan saying, you know, when the neighbours start weaving the barb around, it's time to get the steers in for Brandon. A lot of what he does isn't congruent with with his stated beliefs. We read that interview that Claire Trevitt did with him, where they drove around in a car, and you could just sort of the contempt for him was just dripping off the pages. This is what he's got in common with Jacinda Ardern—he just ejaculates bumper sticker slogans the whole time, and mm. if you try and kind of get him to reflect on comments reflect off his moral compass or his overall way of seeing the world. There's not a lot there. A lot of people said that about Bill Clinton as well, although he had charisma and hair.
0: Yeah, it's almost fearful for me. And he hasn't committed to ruling out Winston like David Seymour has. So he's left his options open there. So then Tover O'Brien jumped on that, trying to get a commitment out of him about if Winston gets across the 5% Line he goes into coalition with Seymour and Winston, and Winston has these dare I say it these anti vaxxers on his mm. list, and he brings people in. Will he allow those in the cabinet? Will he allow those around the table? And he, initially he wouldn't be drawn on that, and finally she felt she had her big gotcha. Why on earth that this is such an issue? Because they are absolutely fixated on anything around the vaccination rollout, and not only fixated, but I think terrified of having a politician in the house that is the likes of a Renick or an Antic or a Bridgen who are actually going
1: going to push back against the party line. My depth of despair about Christopher Hopkins came when he was asked a question in a public meeting that was, if you could satisfy yourself... If you could do whatever research was necessary to satisfy yourself, giving kids fluoride and water decreased their IQs, that the vaccine was neither safe nor effective, that there were no principles in the treaty that suggested co-governance, would you change your policy and your mind? And he just snapped, no. It's like having a chat with an AI bot. They don't necessarily bring a lot of soul to the uh, conversation.
0: Well. And to strengthen that point, I listened to a podcast, which is Leighton Smith, which is a favourite of both you and I. In the mailbag, there was a in the, a listener letter, the best comment I've heard in a long time. And the listener said, I always thought John Key was a hollow man, but in Christopher Luxon, we have a vacuum.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I'd, you know, he's a, he's a father, he's a husband, and people who meet him say he's a lot better in person than he is. It must be terrifying knowing that if you kind of do... This is why I'm not going into politics. I just sometimes can't help if I... Joke is kind of just floating above the net. I can't help smashing it. And I guess that goes some way towards bleaching one's personality of any substance.
0: I mean, he doesn't express strength. He doesn't express leadership. He doesn't express decisiveness. I don't believe. And I think that that comes from the wokeism, because with wokeism, it's not about the individual, it's about the collective. And you cannot pop your head above the parapet without running the risk of whopping it off. And I think years of being in the corporate environment has actually conditioned and groomed him to that. Well, I mean, yeah, that's one way
1: of looking at it. But the other way is it's selected him for that personality characteristic because you don't want creative people necessarily in those roles. You want people who uh, help set out policy and guidelines and then follow them no matter what. I mean, Jordan Peterson's spoken about this at length. There's a process where creative people get winnowed out at, on the bottom layers of the corporate world. That's the danger of of having a corporate guy running a country because a country's got a certain soul and it's it's reductionist to think that you can reduce it to numbers. Mm.
0: So let's cycle back to Cam's comments. Matthew Houghton has also raised this, and so has Bryce Edwards from Wellington University. He's actually been banging on about this teal idea for, for many years. Houghton writes, one of my external roles of politics under MMP is each government is worse than the one before. This means a Luxon-led National Act New Zealand First government will be worse than the current Hipkins-led Labour-majority government, which somehow found a way to be worse than the Ardern-led Labour New Zealand-first government. But note, my internal rule also applies to each term of government. So that leaves open the possibility, I would say a near certainty, that either a Luxon-led National Act New Zealand-first government Or a Luxon-led national green government would be better than a Hipkins-led Labour green to party Māori government?
1: Mm -hmm. That was kind of mental gymnastics for me. he, He kind of said one thing and then I didn't actually get the argument that led to that conclusion because I think it wasn't there.
0: In brackets, this is the part that you've alluded to. There is no prospect of a National Act government because national insiders say the party plans to do anything to avoid it on the grounds Act would force it to develop and implement a comprehensive and effective but perhaps unpopular reform programme. goes on to say anyone who should plan to move to Australia or beyond should do so as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting mm. and pessimistic comment. But
0: but what it does say though is that David Seymour, to his credit, has said we will not, you know, want to negotiate with once. initially, it was like in terms of, I think, it was a cabinet, and then he sort of had to roll it back a little. Mm. This does leave a, a big question, I think, for a lot of National Party voters because one of the battlegrounds. Uh, at the moment, is rural New Zealand. We know in the last election that rural New Zealand went red in many places for the first time in a very, very long time. They are feeling pretty battered and bruised. National is desperate to win a lot of those voters back. ACT is making big ground amongst that electorate, as too is New Zealand first, and... The other minority parties that sit particularly in the freedom part of the spectrum rural New Zealand is actively looking and casting around for where to vote for if Luxon doesn't rule out a coalition with the Greens I think rural New Zealand will be saying oh, I'm not sure Chris there are a lot of people that will be voting on single issue Think of the freedom rubbish. community they will be here. yeah yeah and that's the difficulty. That's the difficulty I've had as a voter is I've traditionally always been a policy girl. I've been one of those people that will go through, read all the policies, look at everything, weigh up, who best reflects my values. Decide again um, that
1: it's act. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. My candidate vote is the one that's bounced around all over the spectrum.
1: Okay. Is my you party worry vo- about saying who it is. Can we
0: my candidate vote?
1: Do can I do a Jack Tame uh, and you, can you play Christopher <laughs> Luxon?
0: My candidate vote is going to be somebody that's, that I'm voting with my heart. Okay. So there you go. My party vote is it's solidifying now, but it, that has been the one vote that funnily enough, over 20 plus years, I've actually pretty much had the same vote because each time that I've gone through the policies, this is the one that's come up for me. Now, I did that vote compass thing. What did it tell you? Yeah, I almost my dot sat almost right on top of the party that I voted for for the last 20 years. But the problem is, is that party has really, 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 really pissed me off. The leader has, not the party. There's probably some good people there, but I and I'm having some issues. Mm. And so this and that's my conundrum because I am now looking at changing that party vote for the first time in two decades.
1: You know, and I mean, this is (laughs) no come as no surprise to our listeners, but. I'm probably reasonably similar to you in, in that sense. There's a lot to like about some of Act's um, policies, but th- th- there's the last three or four years as well. I saw uh, that excellent interview with New Zealand's emerging Tucker Carlson, Peter Williams. I uh, did this, the first televised interview I've seen him do for a while with Winston Peters the other day. And, yeah. know, I mean, I, I don't think we've ever been accused of being a stalking horse for New Zealand First because we tend to give everyone a And But his uh, Winston Peters' answers, uh, when challenged on, I guess, some of the candidates that I would vote for New Zealand First to get in to Parliament to ask questions that have been absent, his defence of them was far sharper than it was when he was interviewed and sort of basically wriggled out of it by saying, well, they were a provisional candidate. I just thought that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. You, sh- you should be able to form a cogent argument about why. You should be able to defend them.
0: Mm. If you were part of the Foundation Members Club, we talked about that on Sunday night. I mc the the monthly Zoom and Peter was there, and that was actually one of the topics that we discussed. And he asked all those questions that I believe that, undecided voters wanted asked.
1: Well, I mean, just like Tucker Carlson's current interviews, it's jarring to see a decent political interview that doesn't have um, Comrade Cindy or Hipkins in the background going, ah, 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 waving a big wad of cash saying, we talked about this and pointing (laughs) to it, making zip your mouth motions.
0: I compare that interview, now to be fair, long format with Peter and Winston, to the one I heard yesterday morning with Mike Hosking and Chris Hipkins. Mm. It was night and day. Hipkins barely talk about a straight answer. To be fair, Hosking was grilling him because the pre-foo came out yesterday and it was pre the announcement from Treasury All you got from Hipkins was, uh, 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 he was like Joe Biden Jr. It was
1: shocking. Yeah. Awful credit to him to use the current rugby parlance. You know, he's really having to roll a turd in glitter. Ardun was the master at that. There's a lot more turd and they're running out of glitter.
0: (laughs) I'll say. And speaking of uh, glitter, in the Post on the weekend, which I know you don't get, but the Post had a huge, big full page on the Freshwater Survey. And the Freshwater Survey uh, is a sort of poll that covered the mood of the nation, so lots of the fields which they quite like, I think, down in Wellington. They like the fields, And it was talking about who you liked and who you preferred as Prime Minister and all of those different things. Now, I showed it to Marty before we got started. It's a whopping great, big, huge, broadsheet full page. And on that page, it said, Who was Winning the Battle of the Crisses by Andrea Vance, Darth Vance.
1: Doo, and, doo, 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 doo.
0: and so she's sort of giving her analysis of the freshwater pole. Now, if you're somebody who is a newspaper skimmer and you're skimming through the paper and you see the graph, there's this huge, big graph. It takes up, you know, a good third of the page. And it's a scatterplot it's like a graph. Vista. Yep, it's a scatter plot graph. National is more trusted on voters' top issues, and cost of living is the is the title at the top. And it's one of those graphs where you've got a middle line, which they call the contested space, and you have um, Luxon and National more trusted with an arrow pointing, ironically, to the left. And Hipkins and Labor, more trusted, with a red arrow pointing to the right. And then you had all the different issues. So cost of living, health, crime, economy, tax, housing, education, jobs, road, debt, defense, environment, and welfare. The two biggest priorities, well, the biggest priority uh from the survey was cost of living. On that scatter graph plot, or scatter plot graph, rather. The only two things that the survey results came out that Hipkins and Labor were more trusted in was the environment and welfare.
1: Yeah, right. Everything I mean, else is low. to pay people not to work, and uh, I don't know about the environment. I don't know how they uh, necessarily get that. I guess it's the whole idea of stopping well, oil and gas exploration. Maybe I don't know. I, I Importing guess it, Indonesian coal rather than. Mining our own? Who
0: knows? I, I guess it must be. Now the rest of the um, article is just sort of going into the weeds about it. So if you were just skimming, you would look at that and you'd think, whew, our chippy's in trouble. If you actually read the article, it was like that headline during the Kenosha riots where it said fiery but mostly peaceful peaceful protest. It's, <laughs> it's Vance, it's sort of Trying to squeeze out, but sprinkle as much glitter. She must have had a shaker shaking as much glitter as she could onto that survey to make it look at least remotely hopeful. And you can't. I mean, it's a turd. It looks like a turd, smells yeah. like a turd. It's a turd. It was not a good survey for Labour or Hipkins. And yet she was there sprinkling that glitter as much as she possibly it's, it's part could. Part
1: of the um, postmodernist idea that. If someone's behind someone else or appears to be disadvantaged, you've got to give them advantage. I sincerely think that, and it all comes down to that idea that there's no wrong and no right. So, equity is the most important goal, and I think I think it's as simple as that.
0: Before we dive into PREFU, Stephen Joyce, I do want to touch on that because I, you know, used up a lot of highlighter on Stephen. He has a beating back the bureaucratic blob to improve frontline public services. It's time to cut the numbers at head office. And there has been, you know, obviously the prefu we're going to talk about that, but he prefaces it with, The government is clearly worried. It has attempted to influence the numbers with its pantomime announcement of some expenditure cuts just 12 days ago, right before the pre numbers were finalised. Those were timed to be included in the report so as to improve the outlook, but they are about as real as any other attempt by Grant Robertson to curtail government expenditure. This finance minister has the track record of always talking a good game about cost control next year, while spending up large this year. The current government has several problems with making their rather hackneyed narrative stick to this time. There was no public clamouring for growth in the core public service in the 2017 election, yet the headcount has blown out hugely since then, from 47,000 to 62,000, a 32% increase over six years. Their second problem is that the public believes and the evidence suggests that the quality of the public service has declined rather than improved over the intervening six years, despite the huge increase in bureaucratic oversight suggested by that 32% increase in numbers. This paradox of poor performance is stark Everywhere you look, be it in education, health, justice, or the economy, the country is clearly going backwards. The public are entitled to ask, what has been going on with all of the, and what have all of these people been doing?
1: Mm. It's worth remembering that the big leap forward of socialism is. Essentially, Marx himself, I think, said that socialism is a means to get to communism. But the difference is, it was painfully obvious in the 60s that as an economic system, the government owning businesses was was a, a dead hand. So they just moved downstream. It's okay. we'll we'll keep doing the business, you, you know, in private hands. Uh, we'll control it as much as we can, and we'll just wait outside the factory gates and heavy the money out of you, and then we'll do the same thing. And it's interesting to to wonder how much the amount that the Public Sector Association is tied in with Labour. I mean, the second most common job in, in the beehive at the moment, or career before entering Parliament, is um, union hack. Mm. I think it's second only to teach, ex-teacher. So if you Mm. ever wonder what a country run by teachers and union hacks looks like, here we are.
0: Here we are. He goes on further to say the big problem is political leadership. The public service didn't ask to create a big new bureaucracy between the already existing bureaucracy that is the Ministry of Health and our hospitals and other health providers. That was a ministerial decision. Similarly, the politics sector didn't ask for a whole new expensive head office between the politics and the tertiary education commission which was already performing many of those functions much more economically they came about because of another ministerial now prime ministerial flight of fancy similar again the bureaucrats didn't ask to stand up a third duplicative health bureaucracy based on ethnicity that too was a ministerial decision. They didn't ask to be sent to design transport projects without any business case or junk all the existing transport projects Ministers told them to. Constantly shifting around the goalposts and changing who people report to stops them from doing a good job, demoralises them and damages performance on the front line. And that's exactly what just sums up what you said. I mean, when you put these unionists and teachers in charge, that's what they do.
1: Spending money is a good thing to do. And and it's, it's something that we're seeing more and more and more is the removal of... What's perceived as energy loss in the form of opposition, where it's perceived that we need to go one way, we'll just take out opposition to it. So we're not allowed to talk about anything that contradicts the idea that CO2 is causing massive global warming, or we're not allowed to, you know, look at anything but how women are victimized. So we've got a ministry for women. They've done that at the media level as well, which is. So dangerous, and we're only just starting to see how dangerous it is that you you turn off that gas alarm in the coal mine, which for our society is the media. The idea that the more the public sector grows, the less spare time and resource people have to solve their own problems. So again, it's a snowballing thing. It, it, it's growing its own gravitational pull, and everyone always thought, oh, it's just buying votes. But you've got to remember that the reason politicians want votes is so they want power, and ultimately having a huge public sector gives them the power to do the things they want.
0: Mm, absolutely. So I had a look at the preview, Maddy. I'm a top-line kind of gal. I don't like getting too deep down under the weeds. Just, I'd My eyes start to glaze
1: over. You start believing spin, eh? Oh, you do
0: I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anywho, I, I felt that there were a lot of contradictions in the preview. Now, the media that's come out, Robinson, he I love I love this headline from Radio New Zealand. That was one of my favorites, which was pre election economic and fiscal update release government books in better shape than expected. We sort of go on to talk about how it's slightly in better shape. What yeah. I mean, what were they expecting?
1: Well, he who pays the organ grinder calls a tune. Grant Robertson was quoted as saying, the pre-foo shows New Zealand remains resilient in the face of challenging conditions, thanks to the government's economic plan. The challenging conditions are created by the government in many cases, and uh, the economic plan seems to be a start point, doesn't it? Yeah. That's it, been what we're expected to buy. All right, let's get started.
0: Yeah, and, and there were a lot of assumptions in there too. That I found because they kept referring to this strong wage growth, strong wage growth. Now, for a, a layperson, you'd be looking at strong wage growth, going, oh, that's great because lots of people are negotiating and they're getting paid more. It's like, no, this was forced wage growth.
1: Yeah. So it's saying recent tax outturns have fallen short of expectations and we expect this will persist. You know, if you want to look at that biologically, it's like when parasites start to kill the organism and they start to look skinny.
0: And I just looked at a couple of the other outtakes, and you're and that's just right, like they're talking about well, so they're talking about the strong wage worth, and the other big assumption, I think, too, is immigration. Everything I'm talking about is high high level people. It's the vibe of the thing. And the vibe of the thing for me is is there's this assumption that this immigration number is going to, They've had one good immigration number. I think they believe the immigration number is going to be strong. But I also know that the immigration department and system is absolutely in a state of chaos at the moment. So if you're going to have this strong net immigration, the people have actually got to get in in the first place. And then at the same token, this wage growth that's already artificial and be manufactured by increases in minimum wage – offset against, according to them, unemployment rate expected to peak at 5.4% in 2024 and wage growth to slow. I sort of struggled to see how they can try and paint this really positive picture in terms of a fiscal outlook when there are these massive headwinds. And then there were things that appeared to be missing. Like I, I keep looking and I have checked with someone around Kāiangōura. I know there's a massive amount of borrowing there. I couldn't seem to find it.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you know, with the assumption that our immigration is going to keep continuing, you can go back to that Bassett, Brash, and Hyde, that excellent Bassett, Brash, and Hyde article by Alex Holland called Labour's Failures, which was about 20 pages long. And one of the points that was in that 20 pages of failures was in a multi-nation survey involving 12,000 people, New Zealand is now ranked 51st out of 52 countries for the best place to live. Number 52 was Kuwait. If you're predicting continued strong immigration, you're up against that, I would have thought.
0: Absolutely. If you want to download this, you just need to go to the Treasury website to find it. It's a grand total of like 160 odd pages long. So I have to say, I didn't die. I mean, I have a life so I didn't dive too deep, but I did certainly look at some of the, the key chunks. One of the other things that did leap out to me when they were talking about expenses, uh, the total expenses are forecast to increase from $161.9 billion to $193.3 billion by the end of the forecast period as a share of the economy. Total expenses decline gradually across the forecast period from 41.1 of GDP for the 22-23 year, which is down to just shy of just under 40% of GDP for the 26, 27 year, bearing in mind that that's three financial years away. Mm. Okay. This was the thing that leapt out for me on that page. In addition to core crown expenses, ACC's insurance expenses are expected to increase over the forecast period by $2.7 billion. The expected increase of costs of insurance claims is mainly driven by economic factors such as wage growth and inflation assumptions. The increasing cost of health services and higher expected claim volumes. Mm. So are they expecting us to get vastly more accidents? Prone between well, them is then.
1: perhaps linked to the 38% increase since 2018 of people do disable to work? What well, is in lockstep with America's... Um,
0: look, does one want to draw that bow?
1: Well, it's an interesting thing that you'd think they're forecasting that they wouldn't need to, although those actuaries are often um, pretty on, on target, aren't they?
0: Yeah, that kind of leapt out at me, I have to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, the monetary tightening, we're always expected to buy that as kind of something that just happens like the tides or something like that. But it's a cycle that's as old as, well, certainly as old as fiat currency, where you make money really cheap and freely available and people take out loans and buy property. And then suddenly there's, oh, looks like the monetary situation's tightening. And so the people who print the money turn fake money into real real estate.
0: Yeah. Exactly. We shouldn't be surprised. We know that they're going to do the best that they possibly can, as you said, to roll that turd in as much glitter as they can and hope to dazzle and blind anybody that reads it. But many of us who are here on the ground, I certainly know here in the Bay and speaking to people that work in business or work with people in businesses, the reality of what they're telling me and what they're forecasting, it does not reflect the optimistic projections that are in this prefo.
1: Yeah, no, it, uh, this is the story of our time, isn't it? We're we're told something, it clashes with reality, but confronting that reality is is pretty stressful, and it's easier for most people, it appears, to um, to just buy it. We've never gone right through this um, Alex Holland article, but you know, there are thirty thousand more people on surgery wait lists. You know, things like talking about fiscal tightening to turn fake money into real real estate over the past two years the average mortgage has increased by a thousand dollars per month under this government you're looking at the tax cuts that we're all expected to get excited about from national and what's that 20 bucks a week yeah 80 bucks a month there's still 920 bucks to find even after that
0: how on earth Treasury can forecast, uh, are not forecasting a recession, and they expect the economy to grow by 2.6% and wages to grow by 4.8% by 2027? Are they predicting that because they're actually predicting it because they think there's going to be a change in government and these are uh, Marxist student politicians with a very, very maxed out credit card are now no longer going to be there to max it out? Mm.
1: It was really telling before the pre-foo was released How Chris Hipkins was pouring scorn on Nationals' plan, saying they just don't have the cash to do it. It's like, well, dude, that's that's on you. Yeah. It, It amazes me the hide of these guys, the hide.
0: Oh, it will be very, very interesting to see uh, what unfolds. And certainly, as we say, the fairy tales are starting to be woven now, and I think we're going to hear plenty more fairy tales between now and election day on the fourteenth of October. And I think each week we'll, you know, bring our thoughts on it. But
1: there's all of this stuff that I mean, immigration boosts GDP, but. It doesn't really, it's a very imperfect assessment, as many people have said. I couldn't find the assessment of how New Zealand is losing its high-trust society benefits in terms of the economy. If you consider just the 620% increase in retail crime and things like that, the enormous increase in violent crime, that has a real effect on the efficiency of markets and the vibe of the thing yeah, really gets perfect. scotched by increasing crime. I couldn't find anything. I mean, I like you. I don't. Uh, I've got a life, so I couldn't be sure that I went through all of it. Those kind of things. The, the kind of things. Things like how long people are waiting on waiting lists. You know, there's thirty thousand more people on surgery waiting lists now than when Labor came to power. Those all have Real impacts on how the economy is working because they have real impacts on people. You know, there's another thing from the Swiss Institute for Management and Development. Again, this is from from that previous uh, Alex Holland article. They compile uh, annual rankings of competitiveness for 63 of the world's most important countries. Back in 2017, when Labour took power, New Zealand ranked number 16. Ahead of Australia at number 21. Five years on, New Zealand has fallen to number 31, while Australia is now ranked number 19. Government efficiency has also deteriorated markedly from 7th to 17th place. Is that the economic plan you're talking about, Guanti? Because it's not working.
0: No, it's not working.
1: We'll know in the fullness of time. and A lot of the um, holes that are getting poked in nationals' plans around real estate, I didn't mention this earlier, but so where are all these buyers going to come from? And no one's drawn the dots about what's happening in the US. And on present rates that some of these big investment firms like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, they've been buying up residential homes like anything. People are often going to auctions, and at the last minute they're outbid by a cash offer from an LLC. At the rate they're acquiring these houses they're going to own 60% of family homes by 2030. So I wonder if national uh, relaxing the laws on foreigners buying land, I wonder if that's where the demand's going to come from and they're just not quite telling us. Because they're very tight-lipped about that.
0: There's a lot of things i are tight-lipped about. And I mean, we, had, God, we, we could be here all day, but we haven't dived into that. We didn't, uh, Shane Retty wanting to stick financial incentives for increasing vaccination rates, and they were very, very opaque what that ma- actually meant. There are a lot of things c- could be quite concerning, and Luxon certainly is more of a globalist thinker than he mm. is about what's going on in New Zealand. And sometimes I just wonder whether or not we need to worry about our own sandpit a little
1: bit. Well, you just, as I said before, I wish National would just do what it says on the box mm. or change their name. Maybe they should be International.
0: Very, very true. I think we're done for pre-foo.
1: I to dazzle our listeners or ourselves with too many numbers. But yeah, on the whole, yeah, there's been a lot of glitter used in the uh, creation of this prefu. I do wonder whether there's some nasty surprises secreted away within its hundred pages or so.
0: I'm just going to stick to my ego meter which is how much a dozen eggs costs. And at the moment, depending on where things go, there could be a few rotten eggs come October 14. That's what I reckon. Right.
1: Well, I've got a whole lot of chicken wire and I'm putting up a chicken run.
0: There you go. Great
1: idea. I'm, I'm hedging against egg prices.
0: Okay, it's time to switch gears. I've had enough of politics. I'm sure you've had enough of politics. This is Media Matters, and of course there's lots of forms of media, and one of the things that both you and I did since we last spoke is we have been to the Flux, and we have been to see River of Freedom.
1: Mm, yep, it blew my mind. Same. I didn't realise how much anger I'd been suppressing, and I think a lot of the people in the theatre with me felt the same way. Just uh, all of New Zealand's politicians who were in power during that time came off looking terribly the media came off looking bad the police came off looking like people who would just follow orders to do all sorts of ghastly things and particularly to a population that had been disarmed
0: in terms of the police too it wasn't wasn't all of the police either like i felt you, i felt it was police senior command i felt it was Also, there were certain ones on that front line that you can see were relishing in it, but you could also see a lot of police that really did not want to be there.
1: Yeah, they should have just been shouting at them, stand down, stand down. I'd be interested to know how many police did say, I'm not doing this. Mm. Have you ever heard of any?
0: No, I haven't. So what I'm talking about for any listeners that had, potentially, potential, because we are getting them from offshore now, uh, that you may not be aware, there is a fantastic documentary film which is currently showing in cinemas here around the country and it's called River of Freedom. It is sparked from the comment by then cabinet minister, the now disgraced, the board, and he referred to, and it's in the film, and he referred to those who attended the parliament protest as a river of filth. Mm-hmm. What the filmmakers have done by taking both professionally shot footage and amateur shot footage and pulled it all together into this beautifully presented film is really worth watching. And even if you didn't go to the protest, I mean, I went to the November protest, that really first big march that happened to Parliament before just heading into the mandates. So the mandates had been announced. Everyone Mm. was in a state of shock. I mean, I think I've spoken about it before the day that Hipkins uh, announced the mandates, along with Jacinda i I mean, I just burst into tears. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Because I just saw, I mean, I could not believe that in New Zealand that this is what we'd come to. I was that, I was distraught. Uh, Mr. Murray will tell you that I was not a happy camper. And so when that protest was announced in Wellington, myself and a group of girlfriends, a number of them affected. So there was myself, there was a beauty therapist by that stage affected, a pharmacist in, in the car, a midwife, a nurse. And we got in the car and we drove to Wellington, um, left at five in the morning to drive to Wellington to be part of the protest that day, as there were thousands and thousands and thousands and some teachers that tragically lost their lives coming home. When I came home, I said to Mr. Marie, there was something there. And when the convoy came through, they stayed. You know, they just didn't leave. They're like, we're going to stay. And that all of that was covered beautifully in the film, the whole genesis of
1: yeah.
0: how it went. I remember saying to him, it was that first day it was, what, two or three days into it, and the police came in that first time and tried mm. to break that line. The one time I cried was that just the footage of that young man that they yeah. pulled out and the woman that they pulled out and broke her sternum, and she features in, in the film. Just the, just the heartbreaking anger. And for Mr. Marie, that was, you know, the anger you expressed that for him. Mm. I said to him, you know, he, he's like, I think I have to go. And I said, you go. I think it's good for you to go.
1: It was yeah, beautifully shot, great soundtrack, beautifully mixed, and beautiful people mm. who were, were a part of it. And what I was saying earlier about how the bigger the central government and the public sector grows, the less people can do for themselves. And in various um, columns I've described government growing like cancer between citizens. And the re- one of the reasons that they had to squash that was it was all working too well. And so this footage... That is a that juxtaposes how beautifully everything had come together with people treating each other nicely, setting up things, systems, and then they started footage of whether it was it Michael Wood saying that we're starting to hear there's an alarming undercurrent of and just lying through his through his teeth as a preamble to sending the evening all and put the boot in squad. I got a bit teary watching them just go in and smash up tents, smash tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and try and provoke a violent response that was going to fit with their narrative that these these were u uh, dimension.
0: Mm. And I think if you were someone who were only judging the protest based by the consumption of what was told by the media. Yeah. And I mean Seymour's gone on and on about schoolgirls that are getting heckled or something on the way to school. I think all just ridiculous stuff. If your opinion is based on that ridiculous Paula Penfold abomination, Fire and Fury, this is the antithesis, this is the antidote to that.
1: Yeah, they should do a double feature. Much. it was a pretty long film, but I, I asked you, because you saw it before I did, and I mm. said, it's 157 minutes or something. I said, yeah. did it drag a bit? Like, we, did you fall asleep or anything? It didn't drag. No. It, it was compelling the whole time. I never thought this was going on a bit. The stigmatising of the people. And I like quoting uh, Hannah Arendt, who coined that phrase, the banality of evil. The quote that this makes me think about is, one truth that is unfamiliar to the Jewish people, though they are beginning to learn it, is that you can only defend yourself as the person you are attacked as. And so those people, and you had an insight into just how warm-hearted and beautiful they were. You know that from mm. you know, the various people you've met on this journey. They were cast as in an, an, entirely, an entirely different way and then attacked as those people.
0: Oh, and the film showed so beautifully that these were everyday New Zealanders and they covered the length and breadth of the country. They covered all spectrums of work and professions and livelihoods, ethnicities. This was a true vignette of Kiwis who were maligned for a single decision.
1: Mm. Kiwi's at their best, and, and you know, that footage of Kirsten Murphy reading out the many problems with the government's suppressing of preliminary data f- from Pfizer that suggested that uh, you really want to have uh, a good lookout for myocarditis, and you're probably better off not giving this to kids, and it hasn't been tested on pregnant women at all because it wasn't ethical to do so. It brings the media attacks on her sharply into focus. The media won't recover from that, and all those entertainers, mm. you know, singing those songs, jab your arm, get the treat or something. It was oh, just
0: that was shocking. What what did they call that? The Vaxathon.
1: The Vaxathon. Oh, it was, and, and man, that is not going to age well. No, There's a whole, there are a whole lot of people in New Zealand who mm. aren't going to recover from that various entertainers and talking heads and politicians.
0: The other sort of theme over, that I found in the film, and you and I talk about this a lot, is in terms of this division within Māoridom, what the government will have you believe, that they, particularly the Māori caucus or Te Mari, Māori, that they speak for Māori. They're oh. the single, I think even Rāwari is implied, he is the voice for Māori.
1: We will. Oh, you saw John Tamahiri recently say, they're going to be under our management. <laughs> like, oh yeah, rangatira, you, you're yeah, going to yeah. look up the tutu eye.
0: Yeah, yeah, just like the Waipareta Trust, John. How much money can you make from that? Anyway, I digress.
1: I mean, it was. It really showed well. Much Maori culture and Waiata generally was permeating that, and how completely comfortable all New Zealanders were with it. Mm. And, and it was so jarring to see whether it was Trevor Mallard, God, that guy, makes, and that was the other thing it brought up for me. It disgusts me that that man is representing New Zealand in Ireland. And our Celtic brothers, if you're listening to this, make sure you get along to anything he's at and heckle him. Mm. I feel sorry. Be be he's got he's to be driving a forklift or retired.
0: He was truly reprehensible, and yeah. because there was so there were the kaumātua and there was one from uh, uh, a queer from the coast, and she went because she was appalled at the links that they were going to to get Māori vaccinated in Tairapiti, and they were coming up and getting van loads of uh, kaumātua and taking them into town, and essentially um, trying to indoctrinate them of the importance of this vaccination programme yeah. and then shipping them back up to the coast to tell all the Te- whanau, yeah, to put the pressure, pressure on that this is what you needed to do. Now, they Curia went in and actually did a poll. I didn't realise this. Curia, Curia had gone in and done mm. a poll of those at the protest and nearly a third were Māori.
1: Yeah, 30%, yeah. Uh, well, about half of them were Labour voters as well, which was... yeah. Uh, Interesting. Very percent uh, uh, Women was it? And and most just over fifty.
0: They were there primarily for mandate, so that was very yeah, overwhelming. The
1: whole Claire. twisting the hair into pigtails and saying, well, well, we've talked to them, but we don't know what they want. Yeah. Which is a lot. Oh, it made me cross. These
0: Kalmatua, they set up a tent. So there was she was from the coast. There was another Kalmata, he was from Narawahia, and there were several of them. And they created that that tent, that space. Uh, it was almost like this small little marae and they, and, and they had uh, for their cup of tea and for people to come and talk and, and it was just beautiful. And right at the very end, after all of that horrific violence, when they broke that protest up, the one tent still standing was that tent. The final scenes where she said, oh, police came over and said, oh, you need to go now and, and leave or we're going to be arrested. Mm, no. No. Yeah. So then, next minute, they send down old cuddles, Costa. You really do need to go now. You need to, to leave. No. And then she said, finally, out comes Trevor Mallard. After everyone has gone, fires are burning, it decimation. Everything
1: smashed up.
0: Everything smashed up. Out comes Trevor. Would you like to come in for a cup of tea? No, Trevor. You come and sit down here and have a cup of tea with us. And he walks away laughing. It tells you everything you need to
1: know. I hope there's not too many spoilers in there. But uh, visually, you won't take in the film from what we're saying. It was visually so arresting. And, uh, yeah, every New Zealander needs to go and see it. And, and, you know, we've talked before about how tough it is to get cut through between people who are awake and people who just seem determinedly asleep. So take some of your friends. Mm.
0: And I think you're right. You know what, I I think actually you've hit on a point. I would love to see both films, Fire and Fury, and this film played to media studies, history, or social studies classes in the curriculum if they're wanting to actually measure this period of time. Put both of them out there. Let the kids decide.
1: But I guess the alarming thing is that, I mean, they stamped that out because they thought, well, we can stamp it out and we can achieve our revolution. And, you know, as Hitler said, who remembers the Armenian Christians? The assumption is we're an ascendancy and, uh, hey, it's going to happen.
0: Mm. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, you probably didn't catch it. I've just spoken to Peter and Now, he's half Armenian, and mm. we were just talking about the use of language, and I mentioned, you know, about the use of our little French Neil. He likes transgenocide. And as he said, I know, he said, I'm half Armenian. I know all about genocide. It's that, you know, that manipulation language. So if you haven't had a chance to see people, River of Freedom, it's on in theatres now. I think it's going to be in theatres for the next little bit. It's got reasonably wide distribution. I know that a number of theatres that don't have it, if you get a group of people together and contact that theatre, I think they will actually do a a special showing. I know that a little theatre down the road from me here is, is doing that. So if you want to find out around the distribution and more about the film, make sure you listen to the interview with Gailin Barnes, the director. Peter Williams spoke to her on the 4th of September. That was a
1: cracker.
0: It was yeah. a fantastic interview. Did
1: you hear when she said uh, she got a call from staff before it was released and uh, the reporter said, so would you say that this movie is misinformation? Oh, no. oh. I know. I know.
0: It's, it was such a good, it was such a good interview. So do you find that realitycheck.radio um, on the replays? Or, or you can wait for the new app, which isn't too far away. Yeah. And um, the new app is fantastic. I've been playing with it the last couple of days. Oh. But it's coming, everything's coming really soon. So do check that interview out with Galen Barnes, the director. If you get a chance to go along to River of Freedom, can highly, highly recommend it. And even if you didn't go to the protest, or even if you've got someone in your life that, you think, is ready to see this vignette in history and actually potentially show them another side of the story. It's not so confronting that I think if you were somebody who uh, had very clear views on the other side of the fence that you couldn't actually have a sense of humanity about it.
1: I'd hope that's true, but I think we're at at that stage where people are protecting their psyches. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, the information's there if you want to see it. I mean, they've, they've released the um, the Pfizer contract with South Africa. And so it's it's all coming out what the government knew before they did all this stuff. Yeah. If you are amenable to changing your mind, if the facts change, it's baffling why Chris Hipkins is still prime minister and not in jail.
0: Because you've got to remember too, I mean, he's up to his eyeballs in all of this. Yeah. I mean prior to becoming prime minister we were the ministry of health we were he the, had ministry the of covid-19 was, response
1: yeah. he was advised that children didn't need to be vaccinated and could be left out he overrode it hmm. and uh you know we've got those those figures coming out of an australian study that showed 1 in 30 something people who got jabbed ex- experienced some sort of heart damage of varying severity that decision to include children to avoid a more complicated message is going to have real consequences for people for years to come.
0: Very real, very real. Uh, but don't worry. Uh, September 11 in the United States, the FDA approved a new updated, a new updated Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccine with a for the new Omicron variant. I'm about to talk about it in the woke news uh, because that's okay because to combat to combat the waning issues with the previous. So, you know, what is it? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting... I mean, it's
1: all all right there. There's a big article in the the Weekend Herald with a lady who went from running a marathon and hiking in Nepal to being dependent on ACC after surgeries. So she didn't get me to undergo procedures without being able to properly sanction them. And tucked right at the end of that is... uh, under the law, somebody receiving a health service has the right to be fully informed, which includes an explanation of their condition, the treatment options available, and the expected risks and side effects. It's amazing how unironically, uh, and this gets back to again, you know, there are none so blind as those that, that will not see. Yeah, I
0: know. It's, it's, it's insane. It is really completely insane. A couple of other things. You did send me... Uh, And I found it in the paper, too, just because we're not going to talk about, you know, that other bread and circuses event that's happening in France. that I did actually get up and watch on the weekend, by the way, but that was only because I wanted to do knitting. Anywho, four-time world champ chases improvements. Uh, Courtney Duncan, women's motocross champion 2023. Yeah. You sent me that. Go, her. Uh, it's often said that true champions are built differently. They have the growth and mindset that can't stand still for the fear of going backwards. Wow. Isn't that something that could be said for this country if you could put your mind to it, right? Fresh from her fourth FIM World Women's Motocross Championship victory, Courtney Duncan fits that bit above Bill. Fourth. And you hardly hear a peep about, that, about her, don't you? Good on her.
1: Yeah, nice. Such uh, strong proponents of motorsport. You know, it's not that I watch a lot of it myself, but I always do think they're underappreciated because we've had some great champions uh, like Courtney.
0: And she's got this wonderful quote, last year I was knocked down and I didn't get to achieve what I set out to. And it gives you perspective on what it's like to be on the other side of the spectrum. There was so much personal ambition that went into this past season and I really drove that program to another level. We need more Courtney's.
1: We've got them. I think we just need uh, need to uh, give them a bit more say in how things are.
0: Yeah. And you know the one thing that really knotted my knickers in the Saturday Herald? Oh, do, do tell. Do tell. And I know this is going to sound really trivial, but I like to cook. And if anyone has been on any of the – the zooms. You'll you'll notice that I'm not exactly a shrinking violet. I'm a, you know rather you know I'm a cuddly lass and I do like the cooking. And I was very upset by the news that Edmonds is removing their pastry products. No more flaky puff from Edmonds for me.
1: oh you might have to start making it from scratch.
0: Yeah, well I do do that, but from time to time I have been known to be a little bit time poor these these days. So, you know, one does has been known to cheat. Are you paneling this week?
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure, because I had a day off the week before last. Well, there we go. I work at the pleasure of Reality Check Radio.
0: And before we go, you and I have got a little bit of feedback. Yay! Oh, awesome. uh, from, from Jackie, hi there, Marie, love your show, and after listening to this morning, Wednesday 6th, I thought you and Marty might like to read this letter I penned uh, Sunday morning after reading that vacuous article you were discussing I know my letter more than likely won't see the light of day in the Sunday Star Times, but maybe you guys might appreciate some of it. By the way Marie, we share the same hometown in the beautiful bay. Hope we cross paths sometimes and thank you for everything on RCR. Cheers Jackie. And I did cross paths with Jackie at the River of Freedom movie. She was there the same time I was. So there we go. So this is her letter
1: Did she she recognise you?
0: Yeah, yeah, and she came over and introduced herself. It was really cool. She said, "Oh, I've sent you, so, I've sent you a letter," and I said, "I got it." So, so neat to meet you, Jackie. Uh, the, so, this is her letter. How boring to see even more articles in this weekend's edition of the Sunday Star Times resorting to the anti-vax narrative. Andrea Vance. FYI I provide information for you from the Medsafe website, easily available for all to see. It states that it's AEFI report page, Adverse Event Following Immunisation that from the beginning of the New Zealand COVID-19 rollout commenced on 20 February 2021 until the last report 30 November 2022, that there have been 64,829 adverse events reported. Of that number, 3,600 688 were classed as serious. This is in reaction to the Pfizer vaccine. Why do journalists keep repeating the same narrative and do not address these chilling numbers? You don't need to believe or disbelieve a particular narrative or be labelled so pro or anti anything to see that this is still a major elephant in the room. Please find attached latest Medsafe AEFI report and summary. So good on you, Jackie, for sending that letter in.
1: I look forward to seeing that in the Sunday Star Times. Yeah.
0: We both know that that will not be in the
1: Sunday Star
0: Times. But good on you. So keep that feedback coming. Of course, 2057 is the text and inbox at Reality Check Radio is the email address. And, of course, you and I will do this all again next week.
1: I can't wait. Until then. Have a good week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yellow chick yep. 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 radio radio